You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm your host, Tom Shamba, and thank you for listening. If you're a new listener to War Dogs Podcast, Welcome, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when a new episode is posted. So go ahead. How did you get started uh, with dogs in your Army career? Okay, I had just gone through a divorce, and they were hot to trot in 1966, escalating the war. And I knew that uh, I was going to look like a piece of prime beef when I went to the selective service office and said uh, I just got divorced um, no longer married and they said okay well we'll be in touch with you seemed like two weeks later I got a letter saying that you've been your classification was changed from 3A to 1A seemed like a week later I got another letter to report to the induction center for a physical and I thought, man, that's fast. I'm not, letting, I'm not letting them take me. I'm going to avoid the draft, and I'm going to enlist in the Army. And military police, like my, my brother and my uncle, both of them were in Germany or that area, but, but one of them came by way of Normandy, my uncle. And so um, I thought, good, good. I know I'm not going to end up being a cook now or an infantry guy or something. Got the MP school. And I said, hey, you know, I, I asked for MP and I asked to be stationed in Germany. I, and they said, well, we couldn't get you Germany. We got you the second best thing. We're getting you a German shepherd. You're a canine. <laughs> You're with the dogs now. So wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. That movie we saw when we first came in said that it's all volunteer. Yeah, all the dogs volunteered to go in. <laughs> but uh, Westmoreland, General Westmoreland, saw how valuable the dogs were becoming in Vietnam and saw that there's just not enough volunteers. So we're going to have to do something about that. And before you know it, Lackland was full. Um, I went to uh, Okinawa and I was uh, hurt playing baseball while we were waiting to start our, our school. They weren't ready for us. So they told us to yeah, go, go play softball or something. They gave us a bat and a ball and gloves. And I, I hurt myself hitting a home run, running around the bases and fell down and my knee got all swollen. So I got recycled. I didn't have to wait long for the second class because it was two weeks behind us. So boom. And that saved me from having to get up at three in the morning every day. I was able to sleep till about seven while all my other buddies that went with me originally had to get up at three start their day. So we went to Vietnam and I was assigned to Tainan, 
Tainan didn't have a detachment yet. We were the first detachment and we had to dig. I had to, I had the, the, the job of uh, burning the poo. I, I think I could, <laughs> I think I could qualify for some of those benefits now. <laughs> I even have that patch, you know, that patch that they have. So um, it got me out of digging trenches because the guys were having to dig trenches. We had to sleep in tents. Um, it was really something. And then dog duty at night. So what was rewarding was the uh, hearing bunker guards, hearing guys in the mess hall welcoming us saying, you know, we can sleep a whole lot better now knowing you guys are out there protecting us. Those dogs aren't going to let anybody get in. That's How long was your right. dog school in Okinawa? Uh, eight weeks, I think. Yeah, same. Yeah. Eight weeks. It's been so long. Uh, it, it was it was great. You know, we had to get up at three in the morning because we had a uh, like a 25, 30 mile drive to the training location. And they wanted to avoid us being out there in the, in the heat of the day. You know, this was June and this was in June and it would get hot and muggy in Okinawa. So we'd, we'd be all finished by 12 o'clock. And, um, by one o'clock, yeah, we can go downtown, Namanui, BC Street, all those areas. <laughs> We'd be off half a day. But the guys would go out to a nightclub or something and come in about midnight, and then they only had like a couple hours to sleep, and everybody would sleep on the ride going to that training site and take another nap on the ride back. So Okinawa was quite a... Um, I wish I would have brought back more souvenirs. I did buy one of those spy cameras, those little small cameras that looked like a, I think Kodak made those small versions of those later on. My dad was stationed in Okinawa in World War II, and then I went through Okinawa when I went to Vietnam. So it's kind of interesting, but like you say, it was a little muggy when we were there. Yes, it's muggy. It was muggy, but we would get a nice ocean breeze. We didn't have air conditioning, so we would get a nice ocean breeze. And it would it would be a little chilly in the morning, getting up, cleaning up the kennels. And uh, we had to do everything ourselves. You know, we cleaned up the kennels, uh, take care of the dogs, uh, clean up our, our place, our areas. So... Um, we had no no uh, employees, you know, like Okinawan employees to, to come and do anything. Mama-san's, in other words. Not until we got to Vietnam, that's when we found out what Mama-san's really do. I brought back, yeah, I brought back a, uh, a Buddha that our Mama-san left behind because she, um, she never returned after that Tet Offensive. You know, we didn't they, we didn't allow any Vietnamese people, you know, all our workers on base for a while. 
so I kept her little wooden Buddha as a souvenir. And I still have it here in the house somewhere. So tell us a little bit about the, the post structure in your first uh, base in Vietnam. Well, the first day on the perimeter, I was told that there are little paths, you'll find them, you know, as you walk, because it was all bushes, all bushes, scary, you know, because there could be snakes in there, there could be animals hiding in there, whatever. But uh, yeah, I found the path, where actually Heidi found the path, my dog. She found the paths and I just followed her. But it was a rainy night. I've got all my uh, uh, gear on, plus my poncho over the gear. And I'm walking and I'm thinking, you know, what happens if I fall into attack? You know, do I shoot through the poncho, get the poncho up over my head and get shot while I'm doing that? <laughs> what? <You know? laughs> so many things called you. you go through your mind, you know, your mind plays so many tricks on you. Every movie you ever saw growing up, there was always some perimeter guard getting sneaked on from behind and choked or stabbed. So Heidi did a great job uh, protecting me <clears throat> and getting me through that first night. And she was a dog that wasn't going to make it. She was uh, a small 70-pound German Shepherd, first time out there. And she didn't know what it was all about. She was friends with everybody. Everybody, Anybody can walk up to her and pet her. Uh, and then I had to work with her on that. And I no longer, I told the guys, don't do that anymore. I got to train her where she's going to be out of the program. And the teachers worked on her, bit her ears, picked her up by her ears, by her collar, slapped her around until she got to the point where she didn't trust anybody anymore. And that worked very good for me. So, so when you were working the perimeter, the size of your post uh, in, in Fanring, we had about 67 posts around the base. They averaged about a quarter mile in length and about 100 yards deep. And we had towers, but not very frequently. Maybe every other, every third post would have a tower behind you. And in the beginning, the first ship, you would actually have a half mile because there wasn't another handler out there yet. So the first couple hours, it was you and a half mile and then shrank down after the other handler got out there. And then about four o'clock in the morning when the first ship would leave, that next handler again ended up with about a half mile, which is a pretty large perimeter to guard, especially if the wind's to your back, because now you've lost that ability for your dog to uh, alert on a scent coming in. Um, how did you handle that uh, on your post? Well, we didn't. If we saw the guys on our, well, we only had four posts. And if we saw the guys, our, our neighbors, we would sit and chat for a little bit, but we had lights going out, perimeter lights. 
So our focus was on those lights and on the path that we're walking. The, um, uh, the, the perimeter of that post was about a quarter mile also. There was maybe 50 yards from the Constantino wire, the last Constantino wire, because there's rows of it to the, the, the road where our Jeep, you know, our Sergeant of the Guard would drive by and give us coffee or something. Yeah, we were 50 yards by a quarter mile. When your dog alerted, what was your ability to communicate to get back up or whatever you needed? No. Uh, we had no communication tools. Uh, in fact, Longbin was the only place we had a communication tool. They had some kind of a, a walkie-talkie or something. I don't know, something that we put on the helmet. And I don't remember that we can talk to them. They could only talk to us. Um, and, and half of those didn't work. And, um, but in Tainan, we had no communication except if they heard our rifle going off several times, then somebody would be alerted. I guess the guys in the bunkers, because there were bunkers on our post with uh, two men working it, I think they may have had a walkie-talkie. I never did find out because I never really got that friendly with them. One time I got friendly with, uh, I guess he was a Puerto Rican guy and I speak Spanish. So we talked, although with Puerto Ricans, you know, it's, they, they have a, their, their um, accent is a lot different. <clears throat> Don't they speak Portuguese or some no. other? They speak That's, uh, Brazilians. Brazilians speak Portuguese. Puerto Ricans speak Spanish. Okay. Yeah. So they um, they were they were real friendly. In fact, one time I got to uh, there was a white owl out there on, on the Constantino wire, on the first Constantino wire, way out there, maybe a little bit less than a hundred yards. And uh, I, I bet the guy that I can, I can shoot that owl. And I aimed at it, aimed at it. Pow, he saw the bullet hit the Constantino wire, hit a ricochet. And he said, oh my God, you are good. I said, no, I'm not, I would have shot that owl. <laughs> but then I remembered, you know, but shooting an owl, and, a white owl is very bad luck. <laughs> so I was happy, you know, the, the owl took off, but I guess it was a good shot. I just expected to hit that owl straight on. I'm glad I didn't get a stupid move. Nobody came out to investigate what, you know, who shot that or what, why was there a bullet? Why was there a shot out? No. So, Did that you answer a lot of wildlife out there? Snakes, cats, anything? Yeah, my dog Heidi saved me from two snakes as we were walking through the perimeter. Not at the same time. You know, the first one just jumped up 
when um, I was walking, I almost walked right into it. And my dog just cut right in front of me. Next thing I, I see that snake just jumped straight up in the air and she went after it. She tried to get it and, I, and she's still wrapped around my arm and I couldn't get my rifle in any kind of position to try to shoot it. The second time that happened, I already knew what I was going to do. Just let the dog loose. So I'd let her loose. Go get that snake, you know. But then I couldn't find the dog the rest of the night. And about six in the morning was coming and no Heidi. Five o'clock, she comes strolling in like she had been out nightclubbing all night. Like, yeah, sorry. And I got her, put the put the leash back on her. A few minutes later, the truck came to pick us up. I didn't say a word. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm afraid if we would have let one of our dogs go, that would have been it. We wouldn't have seen it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I was so worried. Said I'm gonna, I'm gonna get shot by somebody not seeing a dog with me, or I'm gonna get in trouble because she attacked somebody on the on the perimeter. That's one of our people. So no, nothing happened. Then another time we had a, a black panther and thank God those perimeter lights, I saw that panther just coming in. And, but it was a scruffy looking one. I didn't know black panthers were so scruffy out there anyway, cause it had seemed to have longer hair than the ones you see in uh, like in, in uh, South America. And uh, it looked like one of our dogs. We have a black uh, German shepherd named boy you know and so i thought it was boy got loose or something you know what, what's he doing out there and i'm whispering real loud boy boy come here boy come here boy then he stops come here and, and because i i really couldn't see the whole thing i could see the top of his head then i just hear a Oh my God, that's not boy. <laughs> I went back in, I got into a, a bunker. It was an empty bunker. Nobody was in it. Let's stay in here. I said, no, if that panther comes in here, there's nowhere, there's no back door here. <laughs> so we went outside and we spent the rest of the, the tour on top of that bunker. I don't know where he went. I saw him come in, but I didn't see him go out. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Uh, I got posted one uh, evening, it was still dusk, and an army, uh, I don't know what you call them, a scout team or something, came yeah. in and they had a Bengal tiger on a big bamboo rod that they'd killed yeah. out there, about seven foot long. And uh, I saw the cat and I looked at those guys and I said, tell me that he didn't have a brother or sister with him. <laughs> we'll be looking for him later. I don't know what I would have done if I'd have run into a cat that big out there. Yeah. Besides wet myself. I never saw any tigers, thank God. So after after you let, you didn't have any Tet offensive attacks uh, while you were there on that base? The first one? Not, at, not in Tainan, no. Not in Tainan. Um, after three months, I was transferred to Longbin our our uh, our home headquarters not but not headquarters it was long been guarding the ammo dump 
And I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, this is great. Look at this, you know, the, because the area that we were patrolling or walking was uh, like red clay. It was just like a track meet. And I, and I imagined that I was back home at East LA College walking around the track, walking my dog. It was easy duty, you know? I mean, there were parts that had to go down a hill and then come back up a hill. But still, it was easy because of the uh, the type of uh, track they had. I guess they had to have really good roads because they're hauling in ammunition all the time. Did that concern was... you on a moonlit night? Yeah, I did see, I did see um, a rockets coming in one time. I think it was a rocket, something that was shot from outside the perimeter into our perimeter. I don't know why I didn't open up on it. I just saw it, you know, I mean, it just seemed like it was kind of far away. It wouldn't have done me any good to open up or several of us saw that. And it was a feeble attempt because that was just that one round that they that they threw in and it didn't even go off. There was no explosion. So we would get uh, intrusions where people would come up to the fence or in that area where our dogs would alert and they might fire at us. And then sometimes they might only fire three rounds and then that would be it and they'd be gone. And I think it was an attempt to see where they could get in, you know, where there were handlers and where there weren't. Yeah. Uh, we saw a lot of that. Uh, when were you there at Long Bend? What year? 1967. You know what month? I, yeah, October through December. Then were you at Tanang uh, prior to that? Tanang from July through October 67. Yeah. And then um, Vin Long we had to make room for a company uh, coming in from uh, Colorado, for Carson, Colorado. And uh, they were moving as many guys as they could out of Long Bend. So uh, they moved me along with three other guys. We went to Vin Long. And they said, okay, I yell others. No other detachments for you to be kicked out of anymore. We're sending you to the worst one. Now you're going to see action. I said, great. But why did you have to do it two days before the Bob Hope show is going to come? <laughs> I didn't get to see it either. <laughs> yeah. They put me on Bob post. Hope. So down to the Macon Delta, we went. And they weren't kidding, you know, we were there just two days and we got a first mortar attack, uh, which was December 23rd, 1967. So I guess they wanted to get rid of a few, a little bit of ordinance before the Christmas sees fire holidays for us. We had, um, it, was, it was exciting. There was several attacks, but I was there for the Tet Offensive. And so you get a lot of gunfire then or was it mainly rockets no it was uh i think about 10 minutes of mortars we go out 
to uh, there's by the uh, the gate, the entrance gate. There was a big concrete uh, bunker that we would go into and wait in there until we could hear the uh, okay signal from the siren. So we're waiting, waiting, waiting. And usually you hear, oh, okay, we can go back home, go back to sleep, checking our, our weapons or whatever. But this time we didn't hear that. We heard, that means ground attack. That's frightening. Run back in, get the weapons and the bandoliers and get ready. Line up against the wall. Uh, the sergeant in the meantime, during the, um, the mortar attack brought in the three dog handlers that were out there. We only had three posts guarding the air, the airfield. <clears throat> and um, it was just a battle all night long, all night just here uh, we opened up because somebody took a shot at us and shot up the uh, hooch so we all just kind of opened up got to shoot off some of our ammo and there was no return fire so we were delighted with that but the uh the airfield which was just maybe a half a mile away from us you can still hear all the guns going off and all the shooting. A few helicopters were able to get off the ground and shoot straight down. And it, it took about a, an hour before the jets came and started napalming all around us. And uh, wow, it was a cool night till it, they dropped the napalm and it was daytime because when when uh, F4 jet drops a, a napalm bomb, it becomes hot, hot and uh, it lights up the sky, you know, just like it was two o'clock in the afternoon. And yet they had trouble. I could see them every time they were getting ready to drop a, a bomb, all of a sudden you see all this fire, you know, this tracer fire going at them. And they would back off. And then the next one would come around and he'd try to nosedive into that area. And you see all this fire going at them you know, from our captured weapons, like 50 caliber weapons. And uh, you know, he'd back off. Finally, one would get in there boom, drop his load, and you just see everything just go up in flames. So that went on all night long. Yeah, in the morning, we were kind of sad to see uh, so many uh, South Vietnamese covered in white sheets. They were dead, you know. They were, and then we got to eat in the mess hall because we didn't have, we weren't allowed to use or eat in our mess hall. We were given extra pay to eat in the snack bar on post which was run by the vietnamese so we got permission to go eat at the mess hall but on the way to the mess hall just outside the dispensary 
there were 27 American bodies, you know, in body bags. And I got to look at some of the uh, the tags on there. But, oh, Debbie, you're going to get a terrible call today. You know, I saw one guy in Tennessee, uh, spouse's name, Debbie. I said, wow, it just killed me to see that, you know. Too much information. I just kept walking. So Going. we would go out after an attack and look for remains, any bodies that might be found. Uh, were you assigned to that at all? Were you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. After breakfast, after breakfast, uh, some of the guys went to take a nap. I went to take a nap. And then uh, we get a uh, visit from the assistant post commander because our post commander was killed during the attack. He walked into a bunker thinking it's all his men asking, okay, how are we doing? And then there was just nothing in there but Viet Cong and all the dead bodies in there. So they opened up on him. But yeah, they needed to uh, do a sweep around the post. I volunteered, several of us volunteered. Only two of us got to take our dogs. But that was interesting. That was, um, we had one or two, no, two guys uh, from the uh, flight battalion who were former uh, infantry guys, you know, sergeants. They were uh, reassigned as gunners. So they knew what they were doing. So they, they let us, and we went a mile around the post looking for stragglers, bodies, anything, you know, find, found nothing. I said, man, those guys clean up pretty good after themselves. It was, it was a, a scary, probably the scariest moment of my uh, life in Vietnam was because we took our vet, our vet tech, who was gung-ho, he wanted a rifle so bad, we, they didn't give him a rifle. They gave, finally they found an M14 that he could carry. So he went with us and he saw a civilian and he's yelling to the civilian, stop, gung lai. And the civilian kept on walking, but we're walking, you know, 12 abreast. So I was way on the other side. I didn't, I couldn't hear him either. So he yells out and finally when the civilian doesn't stop, he shoots, he fires a caps off a round in the air. And I thought, oh shit, that's it. We're gone, we're dead. The, the knees would not hold me because I was, I was in a, like in a rice paddy walking through it. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm remembering this song called nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. <laughs> the knees just gave out and I thought, this is it. Get ready, you know, I'm just pointing my rifle out there. And I find out it was him, <laughs> vet tech. Oh man. Then I also found out about the uniforms we had. They were very resistant to uh, water. We had to cross a river 
and it got deep. We had a hold of rifle over our heads. And uh, I got to the other side. And I would say it took five minutes for my uniform to get dry. Wow. Everything in my everything in my wallet was ruined, but yeah, the pants and the, the jacket were dry. Like I put them in a dryer. After you uh, came home, uh, you served how long in the army altogether? Two years? Three. Three, Three years. years. I enlisted. Did, <laughs> did you I, uh, did you use that experience when you got out or did you go into another career field? Well, when I came back before I still had 18 months to go, they assigned me to Madigan General Hospital up there near uh, McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington. And um, I was not adjusted to having guys talk back at me, smart off with me. And uh, I ended up in a couple of fights you know, I wasn't adjusted, which which ended well because I got promoted to corporal and then sergeant seven months later. So, yeah, but I made a few enemies. Uh, but that was the best time I ever had. And then with six months left in my army career, oh yeah, one, one summer we had the uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department guys um, going up there for the reserve they were having their summer reserve time and they were uh, they assigned the uh, some of the sheriffs to us and they taught me a few tricks on speed driving because we had a pickup truck finally finally we got a sedan you know for mp but you know we had to patrol the hospital in a pickup truck no siren no red lights if we wanted to pull somebody over, we put on our emergency lights. <laughs> so uh, they, they're, they're the ones that kind of talked me into trying to get into the sheriff's department. With a uh, few months left to go, I lost, like, God, until I got out, I lost uh, 40 pounds just to get down to the weight that they wanted me to be that I had to be because when they, uh, I passed all my tests and I was going through the physical, they put that thing on the top of my head and they said five feet, 11 and a half inches or 11 and three quarter inches. I say, yeah, well, that's six feet, isn't it? No, no, that's five eleven. Because I had lost down to 180 pounds, which was five uh -huh. pounds under the limit for six feet, but four pounds over the limit for 5'11". So she said, oh, well, don't worry. Don't eat anything tonight. You can come back tomorrow and I'll examine you. I haven't eaten anything in two weeks, ma'am. My mother's got a big steak waiting for me, a T-bone steak with salad. Oh, God. <laughs> so I never got into the sheriff's. Uh, got into um, broadcasting and that's what I took in college broadcasting got in with CBS radio as a writer and uh, stayed in the business for about five years and one of my uh, 
informants, not informants, sources, was from a, uh, uh, a school in East Los Angeles, you know, to help out people that need to be trained for jobs and stuff. And he hired me. He hired me on the spot. And uh, I left CBS to a uh, cable. So I was one of the first cable casters. I was part of a news team doing the news live on the air and then doing, going out and covering stories. And we used videotape when all the other TV stations were still using film. But our videotape was black and white. Many times I would have to go out there without a cameraman, but I, I really used to like it when I had a cameraman making me look more professional. But it was cable. I was a pioneer in cable and that lasted about less than a year. And that's when I got that job with the school district, pretty much doing what I was doing. You know, they, I, I put together audiovisual presentations of our programs and such, you know, you know what, writing press releases, inviting dignitaries to our school to see how they operate and the like. And we got that actor, Robert Dornan. I just saw him on an episode of uh, 12 O'Clock High. He was a pilot during uh, Vietnam. He was a jet pilot. But in this show, he was piloting the B-52s or B-25s. And he came out that night on Murray Griffin's show talking about that school that I worked at and how good it was. And I told him you know, that you know, people come in here that are on welfare and they leave here, taxpayers, because we got them a real good job. They're trained. They're trained to know what to do. And he was impressed with that. And that, that was you know, what a PR person does. How did you, or did you uh, feel like you were impacted by PTSD? Well, it's like they say, PTSD is like a dream that never goes away. <laughs> it just, um, that, that time in Vin Long, of uh, the mortaring, the uh, uh, you hear fireworks, uh, and it reminds you of the echo sound that you hear from when they were shooting down there. You hear the echo sound from the buildings, and that's what it sounds like. They sound just like fireworks. And um, uh, we also had to take care of six prisoners of war. We didn't want to, you know, so we got no facilities for them. Said, well, sorry, you got them now. You're the only military police outfit in this uh, post. And we have to turn them over to you. So they ended up in the dog cages, <laughs> the travel cages. It's 105 degrees outside and they're inside those travel cages. <clears throat> we had to guard them. And then we stood over while we watched the Vietnamese intelligence pretty much, pretty much um, uh, interrogate them aggressively. It wasn't a nice thing to see. And I asked not to be on that the, the next day because they also try to use my dog to scare them. They wanted me to come in, you know, go outside, put the muzzle on, then come in and have the dog attack them. But my dog wanted to get that sergeant that was holding on to the, the, the prisoner. Yeah, they were young. These are the VCs were young. I would 
sneak water into them, you know, sneak, give them crackers <clears throat> from the sea, sea rations. We all did that. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't stand to see the inhumanity. So, so did that bother would, you later on then after you got out? No, it didn't. It's just not something I was very proud of uh, partaking, even though my, my, my involvement was almost nil. You know, I just stood there with dog watching just kind of guarding they I, they wanted a, uh, an MP to stand by and watch the proceedings and let them let the uh, intelligence officers scare the guy saying that you know we, that dog could do a lot of harm to you if he ever got to you they did get a couple of our guys involved in it um, and and they had a chance to, to beat up on the prisoners which is what the intelligence guys wanted them to do. So we didn't speak to those guys for the rest of the time. One of them transferred out. He was the one that was the most scared. He was a former cop. He was the one that was most scared. He, he took out his hand grenade, getting ready to throw it. He said, they're gonna come, they're gonna kill us. They're gonna kill us, we're gonna, shut up. <laughs> Put that thing away before you blow us all up. He said, man, it was like a movie. The guy that was the toughest throughout, the guy that never shared his goodie boxes, or cookies, and goodies, would take that box to the back, open it up by his bunk, eat them, and hide them. He wow. showed his true colors. So, but that's you know that's life. You know, you get a little bit of everything. Yeah, you get a little bit of everything. Well, you had a mix of both enlisted and drafted, right? Yes. Yeah, see, in the Air Force, everybody was enlisted, so we didn't we didn't have drafted individuals. Yeah, and I know he was a dog a handler. You did have to volunteer to be a dog handler. You couldn't they couldn't select you to be a dog handler. So that was a little different as well. Yes, I tell you, you know, I don't think any of us were. Um, I know in in Tainin, there was one guy didn't really pay that much attention to his dog because he was such a great carpenter electrician everything you know i mean this guy could do everything and he helped put up that detachment from building the outhouses to putting in the electricity to setting up the water tanks every anything mechanical he did and i would tell him you know it's a shame that your dog wasn't a robot then you could really work on him like you work on everything else but that dog was very neglected. I felt really sorry for that dog. When you were on, on your, not Long Bend, because that was a pretty big base, that's where, didn't they prison a lot of uh, military guys there too? No. Well, yeah, uh, LBJ, Long Bend Jail. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. before you were there and after you left, were those camps pretty small? No, Long Bend was pretty big when we got there. No, I know before that, that. Uh, I read a I read a book about Long Bin, and it was kind of a humorous book written by a couple of um, guys that were cleric clerks in Long Bin, and um, yeah, it was they, they started from nothing, and they were there in sixty five, sixty six, but I was there sixty seven, sixty eight, and even Tanang. then, how about Tanang and Vin Vinnam? Yeah, Tainan was, uh, it was a pretty big post. 
because it was the home to the uh, 25th Infantry, but there was nothing, you know, for the dogs. I don't know whose kennels those were before ours, but uh, they had nothing. We had to start with nothing, build everything. And um, Vin Long, now Vin Long was great because our hooch actually had a flush toilet and that was great. But I think it was a old French, it was a French uh, compound one time. So, and then right next to us was like a desert, like a whole area of sand, nothing but sand. So we knew that if the enemy tried coming to us by that route, they would be committing suicide. What kind of made us a little nervous was we were right next to the, the gas tanks for the, all the fuel for the helicopters. So one, one good mortar could have hit them. I don't know if it would have done the damage, not with a mortar maybe, but uh, yeah, if one of those things went off, there would have been no more dogs, no more handlers, nothing. Well, it, it seems like there's a lot of difference in, in some cases between the Army and the Air Force. I, it seems like we were better equipped. Um, we had good communications always between each other and, and our camp, our base. Um, we had the ability to uh, request uh, holocers to, to fire. We had the ability to, to get a large spotlight uh, focused at an area. So it seems like we, we had it a lot better than you did in, in that sense. Yeah. You also had better food. And yeah, we probably had better food. Yeah, we ate in a mess we, hall all the time. <laughs> yeah, we we ate in an Air Force mess hall in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And oh my God, we couldn't believe it. Real milk, steaks, <laughs> you know, eggs that are real eggs, not powder, you know. Try serving powdered eggs to guys out in the field when it's raining. Oh my God, as it is, you know, you need water to make the eggs and then more water goes on to those eggs and they just disintegrate. You know, there's nothing left. It's just, uh, yeah, the dogs wouldn't eat any of that stuff. Eh? <laughs> the bacon was burnt to a crisp. The, uh, the pancakes were like cement already, but um, yeah. The, anytime I got to eat at a mess hall, that was a delight. <clears throat> in in Tansanut, the mess hall there, I had to get used to eating the bread with those bow weevils inside there, inside the uh, the uh, the rolls, the dinner rolls. I thought they were sesames. So, no, no, those are bow weevils or some kind of bug. You see guys picking them out. I said, well, I just got to eat them. <laughs> they were baked. <laughs> <laughs> Put some butter on it. You'll never know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ernie, thank you. This has been interesting, uh, enlightening too. And thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review as I always enjoy feedback from our listeners.